0: I'm wondering how you interpret the current uh, geopolitical landscape, specifically the schism between the USA and China. Sure. Um, Ray Dalio, if, yeah. if you've heard of him, he's an American investor. He wrote this book called uh, The Changing World Order. Sure. And in it, he basically outlines the mechanisms of like civilizational boom and bust yeah. cycles and he um, identifies the usa as being sort of on the decline yeah. china on the rise specifically economically um, but what makes this phase yeah. shift interesting is that the us is by far the world's leading military superpower yes. they dwarf every other country i mean their military expenditure alone is more than the next 10 countries combined yeah. they have over 750 foreign military bases and China has something like 10. It's like a David and Goliath on on that front, but economically China is overtaking. So is there any precedent in history where um, a declining superpower acts more rashly and potentially more dangerously out of fear of losing their standing? Yeah. Yeah, and then as an extension to that, um, maybe more specifically to the instance where the declining superpower is militarily Humongous, yeah. like a
1: behemoth. Yeah,
0: um, but the rising one is is more of an economical behemoth.
1: Um, so there's a lot there. There is, and I'll <laughs> try to unpack <laughs> it as, as much as I can. I think um, I think that one of the the clearest lessons one has from studying history is how foolish any predictions of the future are, because we never know what we don't know, mm-hmm. and history is, is 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 an ongoing story of the unexpected occurring. And I think that you know for example um, the recent COVID-19 pandemic, I think for many people who just presumed that the world was maybe entering a new more predictable age gave them a little bit of a wake-up call, yeah. you, just, you know, things that have no um, pre-warning specifically, you know, obviously anybody who studies history knows that the prevalence of um, pandemics and, and it, that, that 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 that's a constant, but I kind of think many people thought, oh, we're past that. And now people are like, oh, no, actually, we, we have no idea what's coming next. So that's, that's a preface, I w- a preface that, you know, I, I want to make clear. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think that it, I would imagine that the United States um, is in a period of decline um, from its relative high point of um, strength. And that strength has many forms, like you identified, there's military strength, there's economic strength, there's kind of the strength of social cohesion and all of these um matter and and impact each other um and I think that certainly you know if Francis Fukuyama after the fall of the Soviet Union said this is the end of history it's the last man and I think that you know that kind of hasn't hasn't played out um the idea that the whole world would accept the western liberal order it's just not happening and so I think that, yes, the United States was an incomparable power. It still remains an incomparable power, but less so. And the question isn't really, is it declining as much as how quickly will it decline? And, and how leaders in the United States can act in a way that realises the circumstance for what they are and places the United States in the best possible position to engage with that, because you can always make things worse. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's clear. China um, certainly has had an incredible rise. Um, The adoption of a a, um, integrated economic model with the global economy has been incredible for China in many ways, lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, has allowed China to play a really important role, a really positive role in many different ways, Um, but certainly has given China the ability and the inclination, and which comes first, you can debate, to impact the international stage to a greater extent. Now, we kind of always come with the assumption that's negative, right? But at the same time, China is a great power as well today, but also a great power in the history of humanity, one of the most significant civilizational centres consistently throughout throughout the human story. Um, so it would be naive to imagine that China wouldn't wish or have um, the means or even as much as I could say, the right to, to have a, an impact on international affairs. How that plays out again, you know, this, the, the, these are all, these are all factors. But I would say that I think that China is strong but not necessarily as strong long-term as it seems Mm -hmm. and there's a few reasons for that one a lot of china's strength has come and economic strength and military strength has come from serving as a manufacturing base for the rest of the world that's only beneficial as long as the rest of the world needs or can facilitate um shifting that wealth to china for, for for that purpose it also necessitates an understanding of china's tendency to absorb and adapt technology developed by others rather than producing technology itself um through je- literally theft of of, of intellectual property mm-hmm. and so yes you know for example the the china has um grown its military by volume enormously, it, it, it very quickly in recent decades, but how much of that technology would China have ever come to possess without technological developments in other parts of the world? That, that, that's, another, that's another question. And finally, I think probably the biggest factor is the um, issue of the birth rate in China. That's not a unique problem to China. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a problem that is going to face almost the entire world, except for um, some countries in the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa. Basically, almost every country on Earth has a below-replacement birth rate. China, consequence of the general global trends and the one-child policy, which was in place for decades, is going to have a real long-term problem. The whole world's going to have a problem in that regard, but China's going to probably feel it harder and faster, mm-hmm. um, which is going to, again, perhaps make China unable to serve that function as this manufacturing base. So, so I don't think China's trajectory is so smooth by any means. And I don't think that the decline of relative power of the United States m- is, is immediately uh, relative to an increase in the power of China. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's not, it's, it's not the same. Okay. And you said I'm trying to remember the, all the points you mentioned, but you said you know is there a pre- is is is, is, historical is, is there precedent. yeah is there a historical precedent? Um, and I think that you know the historical precedent is that no power remains a power forever. Mm. There are civilizations that continue to regenerate in a sense. Um, China would be an example of that. Um, China has looked different throughout human history, but has continuously returned to be a, a a significant uh, state nation culture states you know different times have its history uh, Persia would be another example um, from you know well into the ancient world until today there's been many iterations and 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 the fall comes before a, a regeneration uh, but there have also been states that have fallen and, and that's it and civilizations mm-hmm. that have fallen that's it um, and so the, that, that that the United States, will at some point in time no longer be an undisputed superpower was and is inevitable and actually the united states hasn't played that role for that long in historical terms by any means Mm -hmm. by any means Um, so but but again i think a key lesson of history is that when a power falls yes that vacuum is generally always filled but not necessarily by a comparable power so for example Mm -hmm. You know the Western Roman Empire fell, and it wasn't replaced with a comparable superpower, ultimately, ever. Since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and the Eastern Empire, you know, controlled Rome and Italy at times too, but for the most part, there was a fragmentation of power into tiny bodies of of, of, of power, um, and then in time. Um, various states in in Europe and those states, some of them have developed into the shape they form today. Um, But you know, if the United States continues to decline, and that that may play out with very specifically in North America, maybe that entity, the United States of America, at some point, and, and maybe that'll be sooner than any of us imagine, will cease to exist. And there will be not one entity that replaces it, but many. Mm-hmm. um and 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 that might well be a um pretty stark reality for the people for the people living there just like um you know there were there were there were definitely many elements of the Western Roman Empire that people living in it wouldn't have liked but geez, it was pretty chaotic afterwards um and these things aren't you know they're, they're difficult to quantify but we just don't know I, yeah yeah like the the
0: sort of in the vacuum that it, that emerges all the, the different bubbles of powers that emerge there won't necessarily be a single global hegemony no no um, no yeah you mentioned also the the potential role that individual personalities sure. uh can play in this whole yeah. process i mean i think it's quite uh there's a bit of a trend at the moment for yeah. the idea of the strongman um yeah. i was reading um uh, Ruth ben Giacch is a NYU professor yeah. and she specializes in fascism and yeah. authoritarian leaders yeah. and she talks about the strong man as being this um, sort of shapeshifter. Yeah. He's, he's, he's able to be everything for everyone so yeah. depending on the audience that he's in front of he can curate his message so yeah. as to appeal to their desires, win their support and win power. Um, Like if you think of Donald Trump, for instance, the fact that he was able to win the support of neo-Nazis and religious Orthodox Jews simultaneously is really interesting. Absolutely. So, yeah, it seems that we live in a time of strongmen, and I wonder what role they might play in in this sort of interplay of declining superpowers, rising superpowers.
1: Okay, so you raise a lot of really, really interesting points, and I think history isn't the study of the past as much as it is the application of our individual worldview Mm -hmm. on the past, Mm -hmm. right? And you see trends throughout time that change quite drastically in terms of what people value and focus on historically. So by way of example, there was something, there is something called the great man theory of history. Mm -hmm. And this was a worldview that was pretty dominant you know, until a few decades ago, which was that um, what matters are these key individuals, your kings, your queens, your, and when you say great men, it's generally men, but not always, right? (laughs) There are certainly women involved in this too, um, who, through whom one can understand the past. And so, for example, when looking at um, British history, you know, people speak of the Edwardian era the Victorian era, literally the monarch's name is used to define the era, so significant is the person of the monarch seen to be um, a prism through which to understand it. More recently there's been a trend certainly in Western institutions like in universities to say no, 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 no. That, that that's ridiculous, you know, the history isn't just the story of these individual men. and. You know, that's, that, that's a very foolish way of looking at the past. History is what happens to all the people. And actually, what's much more min- interesting is the, um, the average person, the common person, or perhaps even the most disadvantaged person in any age. So, for example, um, if I want to study what might have been called Victorian London in the past, shouldn't be looking at what was happening in, in 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 a royal palace i should be looking at what was happening in the streets of Whitechapel, in 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 slums and in you know and and there's certainly validity i think to all of that because you know everything to my eye that happened in the past has has its interest and its influence but i i actually think we are a bit naive if we imagine that there aren't individuals who can change the course of history because i think there certainly are they don't act, they never act in isolation. They're mm-hmm. always a product of their time. Um, there always are other people who are extremely significant to the story, of course. But I think, you know, you can't understand the recent history of Russia, Eastern Europe, or the world, you know, if you, if, if you say Joseph Stalin doesn't matter, right? You just, that's, that seems completely incomprehensible to me. You can't understand the outcome of the Second World War again if you don't look at the person of Stalin, the person of Adolf Hitler, the person of Winston Churchill. Individuals can have enormous impacts on the world. Everybody changes the world, but some change it more than others. Mm -hmm. I think it's inevitable. And so, again, I think we would be naive. That would be different in our time. I think, you know, the, the individual personages of say George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have defined our era in many ways, even for those like myself who were not who are not American. That's so obvious to me, you know that that's been that's been a significant factor. Um and whilst in a country like the United States or Australia or Israel, these are democracies, and an individual's power, you know, people's power is always limited by the circumstance, but is, limited additionally by the constraints of the institutions of the state their influence is still large and I think if we look at Bibi Netanyahu he, he's a fascinating phenomenon to me in many ways um, I think there are a thousand ways to understand him and a thousand prisms through which to, to view him and his, his rise again I'm, I, 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 I'm conscious of make, making it seem like I'm making comparison that I'm not trying to make so bear that in mind mm-hmm but Bibi and Trump have one thing that is fascinating in its similarity and that is that whilst yes there are certainly people of, 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 of significant influence power etc that support both of these individuals the base of their support in both instances is from people who feel fundamentally disadvantaged is from people who feel fundamentally hard done by in the United States um, it's it's you know, depending on the terminology you want to use, you know, the working class, blue collar population, the flyover states, the r- whatever you want to call it, right? Though, of course, it's more complex than that. And in Israel, the base of Bibi support, again, it's not exclusive, it's not black and white, but it's what we call the Mizrahi community, the non Ashkenazi community. Um, both of w- both populations view Trump and Bibi not as one of them, but as someone who cares about them, that they identified as members of the establishment or as potential members of the establishment who chose to instead of getting all the kudos and praise from the other members of the establishment to get their ridicule and hatred as kind of a shield for them. Now, whether that's accurate or not, whether that is the product of their successful manipulation of a narrative that would produce exactly that outcome is a different story, but that that is a key dynamic in their electoral success, as much as either of them have had that, to me, that's undeniable. That's undeniable. And again, this points to something that I think is a great error people often make, is to presume that anyone for the most part acts in the world out of this inherent uh, drive to vindicate others. Sure, there are people that do that, but I'd say they're rare. I'd say most people, including people that have acted in the most reprehensible and condemnable ways ever, historically, are acting out of an internal sense of victimhood. And that's very hard to come to terms with. But if you don't come to terms with them, you can't understand the phenomenon, right? Mm And 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 again, you know, let's take Russia and Ukraine right now. You know, the narrative is a, a a great power in Russia, which is facing a lot of its own struggles, right? And we've seen, I think, the veil has been lifted that Russia has a lot more weaknesses and a lot fewer strengths than perhaps we otherwise predicted. And Ukraine, which is you know the the the, the David to the Russian Goliath. But I guarantee you that. The Russians who support the actions of the Russian state today, they certainly say, and I think they certainly believe, that they are acting in self-defense, that they are victims of historical circumstance. They are victims of ongoing consequences from the Second World War. They're victims of a uh, agenda, a nefarious agenda, from the United States, Western Europe, NATO, the EU, etc. Um, against them and their interests, and that they are at risk, they're at great risk, and that they've needed to act in response to that risk. Again, we don't need to accept that that's true. But if you ignore that that is part of the dynamic, or if you refuse to accept that they even think that way, you can't understand the conflict. And if you can't understand it, you cannot Hope for a moment to be able to play a constructive part in in, in its resolution. Um, so the same thing like with Donald Trump, you know, I think that there are th- there are elements of Donald Trump's personality, of his political agenda, etc., that um, are justifiably concerning. But if you only see him through that prism, you'll get twenty sixteen, you'll get that outcome. Why, why wouldn't you, right? And I think that you know people who were in opposition to Trump including the Democratic Party Hillary Clinton herself they they didn't understand they did not understand that people were voting for Donald Trump not because they were primarily as they would present them as um what did Hillary Clinton call them uh, 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 oh the basket of deplorables they're not because they're deplorables or because they are inherently racist or fascist or whatever it might be some of them might have been some of them probably were But most people's primary concern was a feeling that they were losing their country, a feeling that they had very negative prospects for the future, that perhaps their children had even worse prospects than they did, and that there was nothing on the horizon to suggest anything was going to change positively for them. And here was an individual, an individual who clearly has been very successful in many different ways. Is clearly um, doesn't view them as deplorables at least not publicly and is suggesting that he can change things he can make America great again how can we be so naive so cruel in many ways to not recognize that there's a genuine need here that people are trying to to, to fill Um, and if you want there to be an alternative other than Donald Trump you have to offer them an alternative. You can't just criticize them. You have to say, okay, fair enough. I hear you, but Trump's not gonna get you there. Let me present you with a different image, which might not be as holistically optimistic. It might be more realistic, but that's better because you'll actually have an outcome that will improve things for you. And I think that, yeah, that's that's really, really important. And same thing with Israel, with Bibi, that. You know, um, there's been a lot of protests recently about and it's ongoing with the judicial reform, et cetera, and whatever one, again, thinks about the specifics of that reform, a failure to understand that the people who support that reform, who may or may not be a majority of the country, are not doing so because they have an innate desire to um, make somebody else suffer in in some way, they feel that they have suffered, and that this is an avenue for a better future for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the movement is reactionary in a sense, um, as all movements always are. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Taking taking maybe some of the more nefarious leaders who are very sure. who who don't seem to be quite obvious in in pandering yeah. to the masses and garnering support like the Vladimir Putin types of yeah. the world. Um, is there any historical precedent for 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 a figure like that falling from
1: power? Sure, I mean I I, I say that you know it's, it's it's quite common that totalitarians often fall from power in rather yeah. dramatic ways. There's many different reasons why that happens. You know I I think that um, a totalitarian state has inherent weaknesses, mm-hmm. um, and those weaknesses often are a lack of plurality of voices by definition yeah. um, and if you have fewer and fewer voices you have fewer and fewer ideas and you have a diminished likelihood of having good ideas be shared Sure. Um, and you have a tendency for people to just regurgitate and, and mirror the viewpoints of that one individual and no individual ever ever um, has enough wisdom to effectively manage a country of millions of people, mm-hmm. how could that possibly be the case? That's, that, how, how could that be? And so, there's an inherent weakness in the system. Now, it might look like there are strengths in individual, you know, because because you know, you, less debate before you make a decision. Sure, if you make the right decision, that's a strength. How do you determine you're making the right decision? You know, when there is debate, we often don't make the right decision. And so, um, every system has its weaknesses. But I would say that 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 a, a a healthy democracy, I do believe, in the long term, with all of the ebbs and flows that it that it will have, has a greater ability to make positive decisions in the long term. If the institutions are strong, if there are leaders who are genuinely interested in, in, in the in, in the public good um, and that plays out effectively it doesn't always but i think it plays plays out more effectively more often Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so totalitarians often end up falling because they end up making bad decisions and when you know that veneer of efficiency is is removed well then why does everyone else keep going right mm-hmm. as long as they are the genius who's making right decisions all the time and no time for debate because we're just steaming ahead that's all fine but when there's no time for debate and we're steaming backwards it starts going a problem for them also right, right. like all humans they age Interesting. and age comes with cognitive decline and age comes with more and more years isolating yourself increasingly
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've heard a lot of interpretations about Putin and the COVID-19 and the isolation he experienced as a result of that as being a um, impetus for for the rapidity of his decline, potentially. I, sure, I don't know. Sure. I, I think it's. I couldn't say that with certainty. Yeah, yeah. We we always have to be careful about sitting on the other side of the world and through our computer or television screens diagnosing people yeah. in the way that a psychiatrist psychologist <laughs> might. Um, you know, that's that's a dangerous thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say any absolutes, but it certainly seems to me um, that Vladimir Putin had at least the the image in the past of being. Um, somebody who thought very strategically and um, with a very long view, and was able to navigate what, what is not really that that powerful a state. Really, um, I think you know. I saw recently that the GDP of um, the Russian Federation was not that different from that of Italy. Like you know, it's 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 it's, it's um, really quite quite um, admirably if what you are looking at is the relative strategic power of the Russian Federation only. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at the individual living standard of the individual Russian, if you're looking at, you know, civil rights, of, then, then maybe you, don't, you, you see it very differently. Um, and certainly, you know, there was an improvement in living standards from the immediate post-Soviet era. Um, but still, you know, in many parts of Russia, I would have imagined that there are other courses the Russian Federation could have taken that would have meant the well-being of individual citizens would have been better. But again, let's not make the error, as I often hear shared, thinking that, you know, Vladimir Putin, even right now, must be incredibly unpopular amongst the Russian people. Sure, I don't think that's the case. I think that there are differing views within Russian society, but I think there are certainly still many people within Russian Federation who very much support Vladimir Putin and his um, agenda. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's had a long time to establish a system that scaffolds his position. Mm-hmm. And that's not instantaneously going to disappear mm. unless things get drastically worse very quickly. And again, that might still happen. Yeah. But we've seen, you know, I, I I would have imagined that many would have predicted if the Russian Federation had invaded Ukraine in the way that it had as many months ago as it had, with as little success as it's experienced, that Vladimir Putin would still be in power. But he is. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe that scaffolding
0: that he's created for himself is out of fear of Losing power and facing the consequences of, of all the atrocities that, of course, uh, whatever or corruption, yeah. everything that is committed. Yeah. So, I mean, it's also possible that these powerful leaders, these strongmen, don't necessarily want to remain in power. They just don't see an alternative. Like that, it reminds yeah. me of um, <clears throat> you, you know Dan Carlin. I'm sure, yeah, sure. Absolutely. His hardcore history series. Yeah. There's a series within the series, The um, the Wrath of the Khans, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He talks about the Mongols. They've yeah. got this attacking strategy. Whenever they surround a village or a township, they, they surround it, but not completely. They leave mm. a narrow passage of escape mm. because it changes the psychological landscape yeah. of the conflict. You're no longer fight, fighting someone sure. who's ready to to die because yeah. they have no other choice. <laughs> they will die. Yeah. Um, Instead, they've got a they've got a narrow path of escape. So the Mongols realised that that was actually that led to swifter uh, conquests and minimal casualties for them. So I wonder if there's some sort of way that we can apply yeah. that strategy here, where you've got these leaders who maybe might be looking for a
1: way out, but they just don't see one. If we can provide some sort of narrow passage. So I think that it's fa- It's really interesting that you raise that because Vladimir Putin himself often throughout his, his, his presidency, throughout his political life, has spoken about a formative experience, I don't know if it happened or if it's allegorical, that he had as a child in Leningrad, that in his apartment building, um, they used to corner rats, he used to chase rats around. Mm. He um, ended up cornering a rat at one time, and the rats that would often run away, um, once cornered, turned on him and attacked and what he said he learned from that experience was that when you corner a rat or a person or a country whatever it might be it will do exactly that when it has no way out it will fight with a ferocity that is incomparable because it has nothing to lose and i think that um i don't know that there is any avenue now certainly um to facilitate you know an escape route for, for putin i don't know where where would he go what would that look like i'm not sure i think that um I think that um, he, he probably in his psyche I would have thought has never felt that was possible. I think he's always viewed Russia um, for all time as being cornered by definition. Mm-hmm. That, that is a consequence of geography, a consequence of history, a consequence of you know, so many factors that Russia is always that cornered being. Um, and so even if there was literally a way out i don't think he would have perceived it that way and i think that um it's certainly too far gone and the problem is you know that there's this whole regime of people built around him and their position their power their wealth um, is a product of um essentially uh, uh, siphoning the wealth of russia more broadly um, and if you know if 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 the regime falls, how does it fall without all of them facing a judgment day? I, I don't see how so it's not just mm. him as an individual. it's it's really complex. Um, and yeah, I, I I don't know what Vladimir Putin's image of the future is. I don't know if he imagines that he will serve as president until um, he dies. Um I don't know if he imagine that he will serves until, i really don't know i you know what what is interesting is that he came to prominence from relative obscurity um because of the position that he played for the mayor of leningrad for whom he deputized and then boris yeltsin who was president before him he kind of positioned himself for both of those figures who had also undertaken their own corruption as saying you know you will step aside at some point you are afraid of that judgment day if I step in, I will ensure that day never comes. Mm-hmm. That was actually probably his greatest strategic move. That's how he became the figure that we know. And I don't, I, I don't know if he perceives that there is someone that would play that role for him. I certainly can't identify who that individual would would be particularly clearly. Certain um, so people you could suggest, but none of them seem seem logical to me. Um, so yeah, I think I, I I I think the future looks pretty bleak for him. Um, And again, Russia faces significant challenges, including its own population decline, which is very significant. You can't um, underestimate how impactful that will be. And I do think there is going to be a global shift everywhere from the the, the universal wisdom almost of very recently that the world was going to face an overpopulation crisis Mm -hmm. to recognition that we're actually probably much more likely to face an underpopulation crisis. Um, you know, I think that almost everywhere, almost everywhere, the experience of having aunts, uncles, cousins is going to become uncommon., mm. right? If, mm. if, if, you know, replacement rate is generally identified as 2.1 children per, wo- per woman.. Sure. We're below two, almost everywhere, simply significantly below that. Um, you know, if, if you have one child, they're unlikely to have cousins, aunts, uncles if that continues. And even if you have two, if 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 only one is likely to end up having a child, then one won't. It's mm-hmm. it's it's um and again, some people might see that as, as, as not an issue at all. Um, but there are certainly questions that have to be answered about what a world like that looks like. Who who um supports people who are older? Um, who um pays taxes to support who fills roles who you know and something that china's learned is that when you have a society that is predominantly made up of people with one child with one grandchild etc your view of the world changes drastically and your view of that person changes drastically and the way you raise that child changes drastically and not necessarily for the better not necessarily for the better Um yeah just what does that mean what does that mean what does that mean for the socialization of people going forward what does that mean i mean you grew up with with four siblings right yeah. you know um i'm sure there were times when you know you had all different thoughts about that but i imagine today you view that experience as pro- I, I presume overwhelmingly positive and having defined who who and what you are and and think about how much of how you are in the world you learned through that family dynamic Imagine a society predominantly made up of individuals raised with two parents, now increasingly larger portion one parent, um, and perhaps a a, a grandparent or or more, but that's the extent of the family in the average circumstance. that's That's a model of society we've never seen. We don't know what that will look like. And what will that look like for that child? when they become let's say the only income earner in that entire family structure or the only able bodied person in that entire family structure you know it's 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 complicated yeah yeah